Hello, podcast listeners. I am currently switching a lot of my podcast from my Bearded Disciple podcast to here on Ratio Christie CSU. Uh, this is one of those podcasts. Hope you enjoy. Hey, all of you Bearded Disciples out there and any of you that wish you could grow a beard. Welcome to the Bearded Disciple podcast. This is a podcast all about sharing the truth with people in love. I firmly believe that love without truth is not love, and truth without love is not truth. With that in mind, I try to make this a podcast that speaks the truth and in love, even in some of the hardest issues surrounding Christ and the Christian worldview. This week, I'm sharing with you a talk that I gave at Rastio Christi on the evidence of the resurrection of Jesus. This is one of the most important issues to all of Christianity, but I won't get into that too much, otherwise I'd just be repeating the entire talk. I hope you enjoy the podcast. If you do, please give it a like and a share so more people can hear and learn the important truths that we're sharing here in this podcast. So this week, we are diving into evidence of the resurrection. We talked about miracles a couple of weeks ago, or I guess it was three weeks ago, maybe even more than that. Three weeks ago, I was actually talking about prophecy. Four weeks ago, we were talking about miracles. Then we talked about prophecy, so we looked at specifically um, Daniel 7 and 8, uh, which talks a lot about some of the kingdoms that were going to come after the time of Daniel. Um, So just a kind of real brief run through, it talked about these different beasts that both Proverbs, or not Proverbs, um, Daniel 7 and 8 was prophesying about these kingdoms that were going to come, who would take over Babylon, how they would do it who would then take over Medo-Persia, who was the one that took over Babylon, how they would do it, and then how Greece would come and take over Medo-Persia, and then how that would fall, and how that would split into four kingdoms, and then one of those kingdoms had a leader who would come about in a certain way. And all that stuff is prophesied in Daniel, and we can confirm Daniel was written before those events that it's talking about. And very clearly, those prophecies are fulfilled as we look through history. So it's really, really fascinating. Um, We do have that up on my podcast at Bearded Disciple. If you guys wanna check it out, um, it's also posted, I think, on our Facebook page um, or group. So encourage you kind of check that out. We're gonna kind of keep a little bit along that same strain. I wanted to kind of set this up by looking at the prophecies and at the things that Jesus claims about himself because I think it's important that we kind of tee this up to understand the importance of the claim that's being made through the resurrection. I think what's really easy to do is sometimes when I've even dialogued with people, what I've found is they come to a realization that there's pretty good evidence for the resurrection, but they're kind of like, so what? It's almost like in some ways when we think of watching a movie that has this big plot twist to it, but you haven't actually watched the movie before you've come up to the big old plot twist where all of a sudden we find out that Darth Vader is Luke's father, but you haven't watched any of the Star Wars before that, right? Or Fight Club, where you realize he's just been imagining this whole thing. Or Sixth Sense. I know. Spoilers. Spoiler alert. Yeah, Sixth Sense, he's dead the whole time. All these sort of things, you could come and you watch just the very end of that, and you're like, okay, No big deal. But what we have to do is we have to tee up, in a lot of ways, the resurrection in that same way 
there's things that are going on before, must, much, much of it having to do with the prophecies that are happening in the Old Testament that tee up and make us realize, holy cow, this resurrection thing means a lot, and it has a huge impact. So one of the things to even just look at in just a more general sense of it is just the impossible odds of this. So we think of the billions and billions of people that have lived and died on Earth and let's say we end up getting one person that we have good evidence, and I'm going to argue that we have good evidence, that Jesus is that person who's actually risen from the dead after they died. Billions of billions of people, one of them has risen from the dead. And that one person also happened to make the claim that he would rise from the dead. He knew it beforehand. That's not something that you just look at and you're like, well, what's the chances? You're like, okay, this is significant. This is something that I should take my time to investigate and to look at. So the fact that he's making that claim is something in itself to give some idea to. So in that same sort of line and idea, if somebody's at the foot of the cross 2,000 years ago and you were to tell them, this man who's on this cross is going to become the singularly most important person of all of history. They would laugh in your face because he's hanging up on the cross. Yet we look on it, back on it now, and we don't think twice about it. We're not looking back on the way that they would in that time. So this is an important thing that we look at. So... And then along that line, who cares? Why does it matter? Well, no other story, no other religion in all of history makes this claim. There's other stories from history of some big comeback, some big underdog coming along, but no other story really makes the claim that their God rose from the dead and that his own death paid the price for the sins of his people. This is one idea that people might throw out there. If you ever heard of the movie Zeitgeist, you will hear about people saying, well, like, Krishna did that. Well, no, Krishna was in a battle, and he got shot in the foot by an arrow and died. End of story. It didn't cause him to cover the sins of his people by any means. Osiris, people say that he rose from the dead afterwards. Well, he was cut into bits and then his bits grew into a tree. That's not rising from the dead anymore. We have other stories that are similar like that where someone dies and they're like, well, they came back to life, but they're living in hell. They're ruling Hades. That's not rising from the dead. They're not those parallels. So you might hear those ideas thrown out there, and I would encourage you, look at the original sources, and you'll see that that parallel isn't really what people are claiming it to be. No other religion in existence stands on the existence of one man. Any other religion I can look at, I can look at Buddhism and I can take Buddha away, and as long as I have all of his teachings, Buddhism still works. It still stands. I can look at Islam and I can take away just Muhammad and keep all of his teachings and keep the Quran and Islam still works. There's no problem with it. But if Christianity, you take Christ away from Christianity, the whole thing falls apart. Because if Christ didn't come and die for our sins, 
Christianity is worthless. So you have a significant thing here. And then, of course, there's the fact that Christianity is the largest religious population in the world by far. 33% of the world, 26% are Muslims. So significantly more than Muslims. That has to tell you something. This is significant. And if they, that whole religion relies on just this one man's existence and this one man's one event of dying and rising from the dead, we need to take some time to look at it. Um, <clears throat> so no other religion stands or falls purely on this. And we read this in 1 Corinthians 15. It says that if Christ has not been raised, we are of mo most people to be pitied because everything that we do is worthless. We may as well drink and be merry. There's no other reason for us to believe what we believe if this never happened. So all of this leans to we need to make this very, very important. And there's a couple of myths I think we have to look at as well with this to kind of show, kind of push to the side for a second before we even get into some of the evidence. And one of these things is this idea that Christ being called the Messiah or Christ being called God was something that grew into existence. The early Christians didn't believe that he was Messiah, or at least they didn't believe that he was God, and it's something that came about later. So first, to kind of show this myth away, what a lot of people are going to say is when you look at the Gospels, the Gospels, the most clear Gospel to show Jesus' deity is John, and John's written last. That's something that all scholars agree on. John's written last. And they would argue that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't give a very clear Christology or divine Christology. I'm going to show you why that just shows that they don't have a good biblical understanding of the Old Testament. So first of all, one of the problems that they're going to do is they misplace the order of the Gospels. So most people are going to say that Mark's written first and it's used as a source for Luke and Matthew. The earliest church fathers all agree Matthew was written first, all of them. There's not a single one that disagrees with that fact. But even if we are to say, let's even agree with them, that those are that Matthew isn't written first and Mark's written first, it still doesn't really matter. Because anyone that we look at, I can see a very high Christology right at the very beginning of it. So Matthew 121 starts off, and it, as you read it, it talks about Joseph being told that he should keep Mary as his wife. And it, then he is told what he should name Jesus. And the name Jesus is from the root of jo Joshua, Yeshua, which means the Lord will save or Yahweh will save. Yahweh is the one name God himself gives to himself. And so Yahweh will save is what the name Jesus means. So that's who's going to save his people. God is going to save his people. But when you read in Matthew, Matthew, it says to Joseph, Gabriel says to Joseph, that you should name him Jesus, for he will save his people. So when you read that passage, you end up thinking of these questions. Who is going to save his people, and whose people are these people? Well, the name that Jesus has given, Joshua or Yeshua, is telling us that 
God will save his people, and it's God's people. But Matthew itself says Jesus will save his people, and that it's his people, it's Jesus's people. So when you look at that passage, the answer to the question of will Jesus save his people, or will God, is it God or Jesus that will save his people? Yes, is the answer. Is it God or is it Jesus's people? Yes, is the answer. That's very clearly what's being established in that passage. And it's very early. It's the very first part of Matthew. So if we're going to say that Matthew's written first, the high Christology is right there at the very beginning. If we look at Mark 1, 1 through 3, it starts with a quote talking about prepare the way for the Lord. And it's talking about John there, right? John's preparing the way for the Lord. And it's quoting Isaiah. It's quoting Isaiah 40, 30. But when you read Isaiah 40, 30, and you read the whole context of Isaiah 40, you realize what's happening there is it says prepare the way for the Lord. And who is the Lord? Is it just a savior? Is it just the Messiah? No, it's talking about God coming. Prepare the way for God to come. Because then it goes on in that passage to talk about this Lord being the creator, the one who sustains everything. And so he's saying, prepare the way for God. Prepare the way for the Lord. And as John is doing that, what are the Jewish people then expecting? They're expecting God to show up. Who shows up? Jesus shows up. So Mark is also putting a very high Christology right from the start to say, Jesus is God. So no matter how you cut that, it's making extremely clear that Jesus is God. There's a high Christology no matter what gospel you look at. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word there that becomes flesh is a reference to Jesus. The Word was God. Doesn't get any more clear than that. So any gospel that we look at, we can see this high Christology. So this idea that, that the Christology somehow grew and that it wasn't always viewed that he was God doesn't make sense. And it even makes less sense when we look at other passages that were actually written before the Gospels, which we'll get into a little bit later. So, well, what about the Jewish people? Are we as Christians, are what we're ending up doing is, am I, am I just fitting Old Testament passages and saying, well, this is prophesying about Jesus? And it never really was viewed as that. But when we look at some of the oldest writings of the Jewish people, the Babylonian Talmud, it actually says that every prophecy of the Messiah, every prophecy of the Old Testament was a prophecy of the Messiah. So when Jewish people look at the Old Testament, they see even more prophecies of the Messiah than we do. And many of the prophecies that we're going to talk about today are prophecies that Jewish people for thousands of years have viewed as being prophecies about the Messiah coming. And some of them, they may have changed their tune a little bit because now they see that this seems to very clearly be pointing out towards a Messiah, but that's changing what the earliest fathers, the earliest rabbis were saying. In Jesus' day, it was pretty well agreed that these passages were messianic, that they were predicting that Jesus was coming. One of the ways that we can see this is prophecies were needing to be fulfilled before the destruction of the temple. Because Zechariah prophesies that the Messiah is going to come to this temple. And the temple that he's talking about is the second temple. Because he's around during the second temple. 
So that means if the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, the Messiah has to come before then. There's other prophecies that we also look at that also say that the Messiah has to come from the line of David. Well, what else happened when the temple was destroyed is we lost the records of your genealogy. So people don't know whether they're from the line of David or not. So we can't really know whether that prophecy is fulfilled in this day and age because nobody can know whether they're from the line of David or not. So it had to be fulfilled before the time of the temple's destruction in 70 AD. So this itself is already starting to put those crosshairs there. And we also see um, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls, 4Q Testimonia, is a group of scrolls that they had compiled a bunch of these prophecies that were Masonic prophecies and said, this, these are some of the predictions that we know that Jesus, or we know that the Messiah is going to look like. These are before Jesus comes along and comes into the scene. So we know they're expecting it, and we're not just simply taking a scripture and saying, oh yeah, this one fits with Jesus, we'll say this one's a prophecy, and it was never viewed as such. We're not doing that. This was something that was always agreed upon before that. And another reason that we can know this is the just purely the apostolic approach to evangelism, at least in the way that they approach their evangelism to the Jewish people. So when you read in John 5.45, this is even how Jesus seems to be clearly indicating they should reach out to the Jewish people. He says, but do not think I will accuse you. He's talking to the Pharisees and the other rabbis before the Father. Do not think I accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses on whom your hopes are set. Your accuser is Moses because Moses told you about me. That's why he's saying that. And we see again in Luke 16, when we have the parable about Lazarus, the poor man, and then this rich man who's ignored him his entire life goes to hell, and he asks Lazarus or Abraham to come and send someone to his brothers and his family to let him know where Jesus is coming from or that Jesus is really come. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. They already know they should be able to see him because they've already been prophesied about him. If they know the Old Testament, you're going to see that Jesus is being talked about. And then when we look in Acts, one thing we talked about at the beginning of the semester is how the way that the apostles go about doing evangelism is they reason with people. They don't show up and say, here, here's the gospel, pray about it, and hopefully God will give you an assurement that it's true. They sit there and they argue. They reason. They persuade. Those are the words that they use all throughout Acts when it talks about them evangelizing. And when they go to the synagogue, a lot of times what we see is they argued with they argued with the people from the scriptures. So this is the way that the apostles go about. They're saying, here, I want to show you, I want to tell you about this coming Messiah, and I'm going to look, and I'm going to show you all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. I'm going to show you all the different ways that God is fulfilling this through this man, Jesus. And this is a method that's been hugely lost to us that I think we really need to start picking up again and realizing this is a great argument that we can make we have all of these different ways that we can look at and we can see that the Old Testament is talking about Jesus that are so abundantly clear. And we don't know it because we sit 
so much in the New Testament. Not to say there's, the New Testament is bad, but man, we're missing out on a lot of the meat from the New Testament because we're so focused on just reading the New Testament. And we could understand it so much better if we understand the old. Another thing that we kind of need to put to the side here is some people are going to argue with some of these points that I'm going to bring up. They're going to say, well, you know, anybody could be martyrs just because they believed it and they died for it doesn't mean it's true. And you're right. It doesn't mean it's true. But this is very different than just dying for it. First of all, we realize there's a difference between someone believing a truth and being willing to die for it. That's a thing that's significant in itself. I may believe that chocolate ice cream is the best ice cream in the world, but I'm not willing to die for it. That's not something I'm willing to give my life for. So somebody being willing to die for, that's important. And especially something that maybe is like hard to believe. So I gave this example last year. Last year, the biggest upset in NCAA basketball history, UMBC, a 16 seed for the NCAA tournament, beat a number one seed. It was unheard of. The Golden Retrievers <laughs> beat a number one seed. That's crazy. Now, someone might be like, I don't believe that. And you would look at that and be like, hey, I know it's true, but like, if you're going to kill me over it, Go for it. Like, I'll, I'll refuse that, right? You're not going to die over that sort of thing. <clears throat> the other thing is, are they eyewitnesses to the event? So this ends up being significant because a lot of people are going to make other arguments like this as well. I believe that Jesus did die on the cross, but my testimony to that doesn't mean as much. <clears throat> this is what separates early Christians from later Christians. The early Christians were eyewitnesses, or they knew people that were eyewitnesses. They could confirm that these things happened. It's one thing for me to say, I believe Abraham Lincoln did such and such. When I don't know anybody who was an eyewitness to it, or, I don't, uh, or I'm not an eyewitness to it myself. And this is one of the problems that we see with Mormonism. Mormonism is going to say, well, we... We have people that are willing to die for it. Well, yeah, but like the only people that you have that have any witness is they saw metal plates. Okay, good for you. They saw metal plates. That doesn't mean at all that an angel appeared or that it was given from God. They are going to argue that maybe some of those people even believe that an angel appeared to them, but some of those later guys said, well, he got off track. No, but it's the most. In, it is the most important. Okay, because because I was going to say like within Islam we see examples of hundreds and hundreds of people dying. Right, but they weren't witnesses to the events. Again, that ends up being one of the problems with Islam as well. Okay. They're not witnesses to Muhammad getting these prophecies from God. They just trusted Muhammad that he did get these prophecies from God. Oh, okay, that's what I mean. Which is one of the things that separates what we're talking about. So 
one of the arguments along this line as well is a lot of people are going to say, well, do we really know that they actually died? Do we really have good evidence for that? And the honest answer is we don't have as much as we've believed in the past, but we still have enough to believe that they did, or at least a significant amount of them did. So I'm going to show you guys a video. This guy's named Sean McDowell. Um, you might be familiar with Josh McDowell. He wrote More Than a Carpenter or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Buck's friends with him. Um, <clears throat> it's actually not completely a lie. Um, but Sean, for his doctorate, studied all of the evidence that we have for any of the disciples dying. And so I thought it was best to just show from him what he kind of came up with from that research. So Sean's kind of the expert in this area. Um, <clears throat> and if you want to learn more, he's got a whole book called Fate of the Apostles. I was actually looking at it today. I kind of expected it to be like 150 pages or something. It's about 350 pages. So you know he's done quite a bit of research in this. Um, the next thing 
is I wanted to look at specifically what are some of the prophecies that we know that shows that Jesus is the Messiah he claimed to be. What are some of these Old Testament prophecies? So here's a few of them. The pro- that the Messiah is going to come from Bethlehem. And we see that talked about in Micah 5.2. You see that he's going to be proceeded by a forerunner. That passage we were already talking about a little bit earlier, prepare the way for the Lord. So that's John. That's another thing that's predicted of him. We see that he's wounded in the hands as a result of a betrayal from a friend. So he's crucified. Those are scars in his hands. And that's because he's betrayed by a friend, because Judas betrayed him. He's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. We see that in Zechariah 11:12, That the betrayal money isn't accepted and it's used to buy a potter's field. And the wording here is really, really interesting because it says the money is thrown into the temple and given to the potter. And so it's thrown into the temple and then it's used somehow for a potter. Why would it be thrown into the temple and used for a potter? But when we look at the New Testament, what ends up happening is Judas feels horrible about what he's done And he throws the money back to the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, being hypocrites, then say, we can't take that money. That's blood money that they had given. And they use it to go buy a potter's field. So that prophecy, in a very detailed way, ends up getting fulfilled. Then the Messiah is afflicted for crimes of others and gives no words for his defense. So he's inflicted for our crimes, our sins, and when he's questioned, he doesn't defend himself. Then we also see that he's wounded in the hands and the feet. And this is an interesting one because we look at that now and we're like, okay, yeah, wounded in the hands and feet, crucifixion, that was common. But not when this was prophesied, crucifixion hadn't been invented yet. So this was a very odd thing to put out there if he, we didn't have crucifixion that existed at that time yet. So what then would you kind of predict are the chances of each of these things? So a mathematician, along with a bunch of his students, kind of put together what they thought was probably reasonable expectations for all of these. And these are what they came up with. Based upon the populations of the world, and everything else at the time, that he's coming from Bethlehem. Um, Sorry, this is going to be weird. That he's coming from Bethlehem. They said that that was about 2.8 out of 10,000, or 10 million. Okay, So based upon the populations from the time, that's what they're predicting. That he's preceded by a forerunner, that there's somebody that would come along and hail that he's coming. They said that's maybe about one in a thousand people that would have somebody do that for them. I think that's pretty reasonable. That that he'd be wounded in his hands as a result of betrayal from a friend, one in a hundred. To me, that seems pretty low. This is very conservative, in my opinion. I don't think a lot of people get wounded in their hands from a friend. I don't think one in a hundred probably does. Um, that he's betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. They said this is one in a thousand. I'm like, that's a really precise number. 
30 pieces of silver, one in a thousand, like that's way higher than I would have expected. But let's just go with that. We're going with conservative guesses. That his betrayal money would not be accepted and be used to buy a potter's field, they said one in a hundred thousand. Again, for something as specific as that, I think that's pretty high. Um, that the Messiah, the person would be afflicted for their crimes, that, for crimes that they didn't commit and they wouldn't say anything in their defense. It's one thing not to say anything when you know you're guilty, but when you're not guilty, you tend to speak up. So one in a thousand, again, to me, seems pretty high. And then last of all, that he's wounded in his hands and feet, one in 10,000 is what they put for that. That, I think, might be pretty reasonable in my guess. Can you, maybe you said this before, but I missed it. Where did you get these numbers? So this is from a mathematician with some of his students, basically just kind of saying this is what we think based on the numbers of populations at the time. They're seeing how many people lived in the world, so how many, what's the chance of somebody living in um, Bethlehem at that time, the amount of people coming in and out of Jerusalem for different things, um, populations. They're looking at numbers to come up with these statistics. And this is what numbers they're kind of coming up with with that. So with the total, when we put these eight or these seven together, um, what we end up having is this. One in what's called, I think is called quadrillion. Okay, so one to the 10 to the 28th power. So it's one with one with one, one over one with 28 zeros after it. That's the chance for just those prophecies to come about. Um, I don't think it's quite as high as that, but we're not looking at all the prophecies of the Old Testament. We're looking at seven. There's about 300 in the Old Testament. For the chances to win the lotto, your chance to win the lotto is about 1 in 175 billion. So your chances of fulfilling these prophecies is way less. To give you a little bit of a picture, because I think it's hard for us to kind of get that idea in our heads, think of Texas. So to kind of even remind you of how big Texas is, this is Texas over Europe on, to give you an idea of the size. If we were to fill Texas with silver dollars all the way about two feet deep, the entire state, and we were to mark one of those silver dollars, we would take Sean, blindfold him, tell him to walk as long as he wants, and then at one point he has a step, grab one of those silver dollars, and it has to be the one that's marked, that we marked. That's the chance of just seven of those prophecies. So we're already looking pretty crazy in that sense. Um, <clears throat> then the question becomes, well, could we just like fit it? You know, could the Mormons or the Muslims kind of look at it and say, well, look at all of these passages. These passages are really prophesying of Muhammad or prophesying of Joseph Smith. Well, <clears throat> see if you can recognize from these two passages, these are the one 
passages that other religions look at and try to say that this is talking about their person. Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write upon it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his companions, and join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in thine hand. Who's it talking about? They're going to say it's Joseph Smith because it says Joseph. Yeah. Well, who's the son of Israel? Joseph. Maybe it's talking about him, who's one of Judah's brothers, Joseph. Maybe it's talking about him. There's really not much reason to look in that passage and think, oh, it must be talking about Joseph Smith. <clears throat> Another one, I, God, will raise them up a prophet among their brethren like unto thee, Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. Who's this talking about? Not super clear. Maybe because it sounds like about any prophet ever. They're going to say it's Muhammad. This is what they're arguing that. These aren't very clear passages. And these... When you look at all of Islam, this is the one passage they're going to give you. When you look at all of Mormonism, this is the one passage they're going to give you. They each have come to a grand total of one. It's not that easy to make the Old Testament predict your coming, unlike people want to say. <clears throat> so our modest goal is we're trying to convince people that the most non-biased and reasonable explanation for the historical facts we have is that Jesus rose from the dead. So now moving now specifically towards the resurrection, this is what we're going to look at. So <clears throat> what is our criteria? We're going to look at early reports because the best reports of what is historical is to look at the people that are closest to the events. So those end up being the Gospels and the early epistles. But we also have some non-Christian sources, which we'll talk about when we kind of get to those, that are still early sources. We're not going to look at the Gospel of Thomas. We're not going to look at the Gospel of Bartholomew, because those are sources that are way later. And those are the sources that somebody like a Muslim might look at and say, see, he never really died on the cross. It just appeared that he did. Well, if you're going to use the Gospel of Thomas, that's three or 400 years after to get your evidence, frankly, I want something that's a little closer to the events that it's talking about. So we're going to look at the closest events. We're also going to want eyewitness reports. Along that note, early is good. Eyewitness is even better. So if we can get somebody who is actually there telling us what actually happened, it doesn't get any more reliable than that. So eyewitness reports is going to be huge. Multiple independent attestations. So we have to remember when we're looking at scripture, the Bible's not a source. It's sources. Even when we're looking at the synoptic gospels, there's things in each of those gospels, even the synoptic gospels that agree on a lot and even quote each other word for word in a lot of it. There's still significant things that the other gospels don't contain that each of them have. So they're getting information that the other ones don't and they're still very close to the events. <clears throat> Principle of embarrassment. 
This is merely the fact that when you look at something and you're looking at history and it says something bad about the person that's writing it, that's a good reason to believe that it really happened. Because if you're making up a story, you make yourself look good. You don't write, and that's when Jesus called me Satan. (laughs) But that's what he did. So that's what they wrote. So if we have in the Gospels things like that written down, it's reasons to think they're probably writing the truth. Because generally, when you're doing a crime, you try to gain sex, power, or money. Those are the, those are the goals of any crime. Jay Warner Wallace is an apologist that I follow a lot, and he was a cold case detective in California for a long time. He's probably been on Dateline more than any other detective in history because he's solved so many cold cases, and he says every crime comes down to those three things. You're trying to get sex, money, or power. So if they're getting embarrassed by it, they're not moving the right direction to be making up a story. Enemy attestation. If you have people that disagree or don't want the idea promoted going around and saying, yep, this happened, that's a pretty good reason to think it happened. Because I'm not going to go around agreeing with someone about something that I don't think actually happened unless I at least agree with them on this one issue, especially if it's going to promote something that it's against what I'm talking about. And that's something that we end up having with a lot of it. Coherence, but coherence without coercion. So again, one of the things that people bring up, and this is something that shows people the lack of understanding when it comes to looking at evidence and examining evidence, is they look at the Gospels and they say, well, there's disagreement. In one Gospel, it seems to say that this person appeared at the tomb first, and another one says this one did, and one says that there was one angel, and one said that there was two angels. Again, you ask any cop, if you go and you investigate and you interrogate three different eyewitnesses, and they all say the exact same thing, what's happening? They're lying to you. They've talked before, and they've come up with a story, and they're trying to convince you by keeping their story straight. So if all the gospel writers wrote the exact same thing, that'd be a reason not to believe them. But if I can go and I can say, they're not giving me the same information, but they're actually giving me things that can be brought together and it makes sense, then that's a reason to believe it. So when one of the Gospels says there's only one angel, it talks about one angel talking, but it doesn't say there was only one angel and another Gospel says there were two angels and only one spoke. That's not a conflict. That's one giving you more information. Plus, we have within the Gospels these other things that are these harmonies within the Gospels that are kind of like, how did they even like, you almost have to get together to come up with these harmonies. For instance, there's a part in one of the Gospels that Jesus turns to Philip and says, where can we buy fish? And you're kind of like, why? Why did he talk to Philip? Philip's kind of not an important disciple. In a lot of ways, we think of John, we think of Peter, Think of James. Those are the big guys, right? Those are the ones we think about. And Philip. Why Philip? Well, you look at another gospel. That gospel says, well, Philip was from that area. So they're giving you this information that all of a sudden brings the whole thing together 
that shows, hey, they're probably not making up a story here. All of this fits. And that's another one of the things that we have within it. Um, yeah? I was just going to say that the best explanation, the best way I've heard that constitutes said explained is, Matt, is when the Titanic sink, we have the accounts of multiple people who saw the ship sink. Um, but some accounts say that the Titanic was completely submerged when they were on the lifeboat. And some say that it was partially submerged. Um, by both accounts, we know the Titanic definitely sank. The timing and the perspective caused the accounts to be slightly different, yet they were aligned, yet they, they corresponded. Right. Yeah, I mean, when if you had all these different news sources reporting an event and they have disagreements on something, but they all agree, for instance, if we were to say the Titanic sunk, what's the one thing you can actually at least pull out of that? Well, the Titanic sunk. It's at the bottom of the ocean. So when we look at the Gospels, there might be some disagreements, but what's one thing we can pull out? Jesus rose from the dead. That's one thing that's clear in all of them. <clears throat> so our sources, these are what we're going to kind of look at with these. First of all, we have some non-Christian sources. Josephus is one. Josephus is a historian. He's Jewish, but he's writing for the Romans. So that's two strikes against him as far as our enemy attestation part goes, because he's writing for the Jewish people that don't want people promoting that Jesus is Messiah. And he's writing for the Romans that don't want anybody starting a rebellion under this king of the Jews. So if he's saying things that agree with what we're promoting, that's pretty good reasons to believe it. Tacitus is a Roman senator, so he's got that strike against him, and he's a historian. We have Lucian. Um, he's a satirist, kind of a political commentator, and he's also writing about these things, and he's also Roman. Maribar Serapion, he's a Roman Stoic philosopher. He's also writing about these things. And we have the Jewish Talmud itself, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, talking about Jesus, talking about what Jesus said about the Old Testament, including his commentary, in essence, in the, New in the Talmud. When we look at other sources, we also have Polycarp, Tertullian, Origen, Clement of Alexandria, Clement of Rome, Hegesippus, slash Jerome, um, and Ignatius. These are early church fathers. Some of these guys are direct disciples of the disciples, disciples of John, disciples of Peter, disciples of James. They are the first disciples of those disciples. So they're not eyewitnesses themselves, but they knew eyewitnesses. Pretty good, reliable sources. <clears throat> and then we have scripture itself. We have Paul and all the writings that he have, he, he gave us. We have Matthew or Mark, depending on what in the arguments people want to say. Again, when we talk about the synoptic gospels, a lot of times what people are going to argue is that Matthew was written first and then Luke and Mark wrote that as a source and got all of their information from Matthew. Or they're going to say Mark was written first and Luke and Matthew got their information from that as a source. The problem with that, like I said, is each of those Gospels includes something that the other ones don't. And what's really odd within it is most um, philosophers or most historians are going to say Mark was written first. Mark's the shortest one. 
there's more information in Matthew and Luke than there is in Mark. So if they're using Mark as a source, why are they getting our, all this other information from? Now they're going to even say, well, there's this other document called Q. And they're getting that information from that. We don't have Q. We have no evidence Q ever existed. We don't have Q as a manuscript anywhere. There's really no reason to think that it ever existed. So that's something we could talk about another day. Um, but ultimately, that whole Q hypothesis is one that most historians are kind of giving up on and realizing it doesn't make sense. Not to mention the fact that the earliest, earliest church fathers, these guys like Polycarp and Tertullian, all these others, are unanimous and agreeing that Matthew was written first. And the whole Q hypothesis is based on the fact that Mark has to be written first. If Matthew's written first, it falls apart. And if all the early church fathers say Matthew's written first, you've got to give me some pretty good evidence to say otherwise, because these guys knew the people writing them. Um, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I'm going to put them as just one source, even though really we should look at them as multiple sources. Paul is a source, and then John is a source. So we have all of these different sources that we're looking at. One last thing before we get into the, the facts of it is some people are going to try to make the argument, well, maybe Jesus just never existed in the first place. And this guy, his name's Bart Ehrman. Most of you guys have probably heard of him. Bart Ehrman's probably one of the most skeptical um, scholars out there of ancient times studying scripture and that sort of thing. He studied actually at Moody um, for his undergrad and then went to Princeton for his graduate degree. And now he's one of the head professors at University of Chapel Hill in, in North Carolina. I think he's the head of the religion department there. He's a big deal. Um, but when asked, he's just received an award in this video. Um, I'm forgetting the, it's like the organization um, for freedom from religion. He's just received an award from them, basically thanking him for all of his work that he's done getting at and ripping apart Christianity. And in this, he's going through a little Q&A time, and one of the students or one of the um, journalists asks him a question about whether he believes Jesus ever existed, and she's not convinced he does. And this is his response. I've not seen evidence in archaeology or history for historical reasons. Yeah, well, I do. I mean, uh, that's why I wrote the book. Well, I mean, okay, I mean, I have a whole book on it. <laughs> I mean, uh, so there is a lot of evidence. I mean, there, there is so much evidence that it is, it is not, I mean, I know in the, in the crowds you all run around with, it's commonly thought that Jesus did not exist. Let me tell you, once you get outside of your conclave, there's nobody who, I mean, this is not even an issue for scholars of antiquity. It is not an issue for scholars. There is no scholar in any college or university in the Western world who teaches classics, ancient history, New Testament, early Christianity, any related field who doubts that Jesus existed. Now, that is not evidence. That is not evidence. Just because everybody thinks so doesn't make it evidence. But... If you want to know about the theory of evolution versus the theory of, the theory of creationism, and every scholar in every reputable institution in the world thinks that believes in evolution, 
It may not be evidence, but if you've got a different opinion, you better have a pretty good piece of evidence yourself. There, the reason for thinking Jesus exists is because he is abundantly attested in early sources. That's why. And I give the details in my book. Uh, early and independent sources uh, indicate that Jesus, certainly that Jesus existed. One author that we know about knew Jesus' brother and knew Jesus' closest disciple, Peter. He's an eyewitness to both Jesus' closest disciple and his brother. So, I mean, I'm sorry, but, uh, you know, again, I, res I respect your disbelief, but I, I, you know, if you want to go where the evidence goes, I think that, I think that atheists have done themselves a, mis a disservice by jumping on the bandwagon of mythicism because, frankly, it makes... It makes you look foolish to the outside world. If that's what you're going to believe, you just look foolish. Uh, you are much better off going with historical evidence and arguing historically rather than coming up with the theory that Jesus did exist. Sorry. I, I think that interview is very revealing because it's also, you notice it gets super quiet in that room. They've got this guy that they've like championed it up as like, here's our guy against Christianity. And he's like, you guys are nuts. <laughs> like, to believe that Jesus never existed. Are you crazy? Like, if you're saying that, you've just discredited yourself in all of academia to make that claim. <clears throat> um, so what we're going to do, we're going to use what's called the minimal facts approach. And this is mainly put across by a guy named Gary Habermas. Gary Habermas has done more to research the resurrection of Christ than anybody else in history. He's got so many books about it. If you read any, read, read, read any book about the resurrection, they're going to quote him, guarantee it. He's read hundreds of different biographies. He's run, read hundreds of different um, sources talking about it to discover more and more sources that are talking about the resurrection than anybody else. So this is his approach. First, he's going to say, basically, I'm going to use five facts. I'm going to use five facts that every historian agrees on. So if you're going to say that the resurrection didn't happen, you have to give me some pretty good evidence that these things don't happen. And you're going to have to show me, or you're going to have to show me another theory that explains these facts. And frankly, there's not a good explanation other than the fact that he rose from the dead. So the first thing that he's going to say, he's going to say that Jesus died of crucifixion. So obviously, that's how we see it written in the Gospels. We're going to talk about in a minute here how we see that in other sources as well. Then we're going to see that he says Jesus' followers believed he appeared to them after his death. So that obviously isn't now evidence that necessarily he did, but now you have to explain what did they see? Why did they believe that he appeared to them? Did they just make it up? Did they just lie about it? What was their motivation for doing it? All of those things have to be accounted for. Saul of Tarsus, or Paul, believed Jesus appeared to him after Jesus' death. So Paul, who is originally persecuting the church, becomes a Christian and believes that God appeared to him, or Jesus appeared to him after his crucifixion, proving a resurrection. James, Jesus' brother who didn't 
also believe at the beginning, when you read the New Testament, we see that he actually doubted whether Jesus was the Messiah. And then he did believe afterwards. And then he got put in charge of the church in Jerusalem. He's the head of the church. <clears throat> and then last of all, the tomb's empty. And when we're looking at these, one of the things is, is we know these first four or these first three are the most well-attested and most agreed upon by scholars. Like 90% of scholars, and again, this is research from Gary Habermas. He's looking at scholars currently. He's looking at scholars three or 400 years ago, whether they believe that these things actually happened. 90% of them agree that these things happened. There's a very, very few that disagree. <clears throat> then when we look at James, Jesus' brother, believe in, it drops a little bit down to, I think we're about 85%. And then finally, with Jesus' tomb being empty, still have a solid majority of about 75%. This is still pretty strong. Now again, just as even uh, we saw in that last video, just because the scholars agree, that doesn't necessarily make it true. But if you're going to disagree with the scholars, you've got to have some pretty good evidence. So on the note of evidence, let's look at what we have for the, these different things. So when we're looking at Jesus died of crucifixion, here are the sources that we have that agree to that. The earliest sources that we have. Josephus, again, he's a Jewish and Roman historian. We have Tacitus, who's a Roman senator. Lucian, who's a satirist and rhetorician, writing a lot about politics. Maribar Serapion, a Roman Stoic philosopher. The Jewish Talmud itself, John and the Synoptic Gospels, and also, I should include the epistles there. A lot of the epistles, especially Corinthians, are going to very plainly say that that happened. So looking at specific parts within that, we have Josephus is one. And one thing to know with this, a lot of people are going to say, well, Josephus's quote was messed with. Because the one that I'm not showing you is actually, there's another one that was tampered with that says, this man, Jesus, if we can call him a man, almost implying right through the text that he's God, people look at him and they say, that's clearly not Josephus writing because he didn't believe that Jesus was God. And scholars on either side of the camp, Christian and non-Christian, agree, yeah, that one was messed with. But we have another one that's this quote that I'm giving you from another place, another region that was not tampered with. So you have all these manuscripts going around. He writes his original version of it, and then copies go around, and somebody along the way tampered with it in one region, but we know that we have the original, region, re original version of it somewhere else, and this is what we get when we look at that. So when people say, well, we know it was screwed with, well, we know one of them was screwed with, but this one wasn't. So he says, at the time, there was a wise man called Jesus, and his conduct was good, and he was known to be virtuous. Many of his people among the Jews and other nations became his disciples. Pilate condemned him to be crucified and to die. But those who had become his disciples did not abandon his discipleship. They reported that he appeared to them three days after. So this is now confirming our second fact, that the disciples believed he appeared to them later that he was alive accordingly, he was perhaps the Messiah concerning whom the prophets have reported wonders. 
So even the, he's even, now we talked about earlier how the Old Testament's prophesying of the Messiah coming. Josephus as a Jewish man is looking at it and saying, yes, we know that the Messiah was going to perform good deeds, and we know that this man performed good deeds. So we know that that's even a requirement of who Jesus is, that the Messiah, he has to be someone that's doing miracles. So that's another thing that's confirmed in this. This isn't, again, Christians trying to make the prophecies fit what Jesus is talking about. The Jews believed that at the time. And the tribe of Christians, so named after him, has not disappeared to this day. So that's what we get from Josephus. We look at Tacitus. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with, was falsely charged with guilt. Falsely charged, right? That was another one of the prophecies we talked about just a minute ago. And punished Christians who hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of crime of fire in the city as of hatred of and against mankind. So he's showing here that, again, these people are willing to die for it. He's also talking about here, um, he's confirming some of the historical facts that we see talked about in scriptures of who the ruler was, Tiberius. That's talked about in Luke. That's one of the things that we're getting confirmed um, so all of these things are pointing to that. Um, next, we have Lucian. Um, and Lucian, he's kind of giving a commentary. Um, actually, that's one more. It's going to be. So they, he says, they still worship the man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. So they still worship him. They're not going to worship a dead man. So he's very clearly pointing out that he was crucified and he rose, according to their beliefs, at least. Marabar Serapion, what gain did the Jews get from executing their wise king? It was after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men. He'd just been talking about Socrates, and I forget who the other person was, who all kind of have a similar story of being killed wrongly. Socrates was killed because they felt he was starting a rebellion. <clears throat> um, and that the Jews are driven from their land and live in complete dispersion. So now he even talks about here of the temple being destroyed. So the Messiah, again, we talked about Messiah's got to come before that happens. That's confirmed from this. The Jewish Talmud on the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged for 40 days before the execution take place, a herald cried, he is going to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So again, all of these sources pointing out that Jesus was crucified, many of them also confirming that the earliest followers believed that he appeared to them later. So what do the skeptics say in reply to this? Well, Bart Ehrman, skeptics who are not trained might doubt that Jesus died on the cross, but to any trained scholar, it is as well attested as any historical fact. 
So he agrees. This is totally true. No reputable scholar denies that Jesus died on the cross. John Dominic Crossan, who's in charge of the Jesus Seminar, which if you've read anything about it, they pretty much are like, yeah, I don't really like that, so I don't think that one actually happened when they're looking at the scriptures. They're one of the most liberal, quote, scholars out there when it comes to the scriptures. They literally read through the Bible and almost like cast lots on what ones they think are legitimate or not. And he even looks at it and says, the death of Jesus is well attested as any fact of the ancient world. He agrees. Jesus died for being a political rebel. This is interesting because Marcus Borg, Sean's actually been reading a book by Marcus Borg in one of his classes right now. And Marcus Borg is extremely liberal. Sometimes he even says that Christians don't actually believe Jesus literally died on the cross. It's just a metaphorical thing. He says a bunch of crazy crap in that book, but we're just seeing that. Right. But Marcus is looking at it and saying, this is pretty well confirmed in history. <clears throat> Fact two, disciples believed he rose from the dead. Again, now we have with sources, and we've read some of these already, Josephus, Lucian, Pliny the Younger, Paul, oral tradition, oral creeds, Sermon summaries, so when we look at Acts, um, we see that there's some, some of the sermons that probably were written down well before Acts just because of the way they're written. It seems to imply that this wasn't a sermon that was written down by Luke, who wrote Acts, but it was probably something that was already being circulated among the church because all of a sudden the wording changes in such a way that it's probably a creed. It's not actually something that Luke wrote. So the written tradition of the Gospels, the Apostolic Fathers, Clement, Polycarp, um, and then we know that they believed it, and we see that from Acts. Um, Clement of Rome, Ignatius, early church fathers like Dionysus of Corinth, Tertullian, and Origen. All of those guys confirm these different things. So Josephus, we already looked at. They reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion, and he was alive. Pliny the Younger they reported that he had appeared to them three days after his crucifixion. Oops, sorry. Now you guys got that one? Okay. Um, Plenty of the younger. Um, they, I'll just read this whole thing. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an alternative verses, a hymn to Christ as to a God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify the word or deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. Early creeds. So when we look at 1 Corinthians, this is one of the most important scriptures in all of the Bible. When we're talking about anything apologetics related, this is one of the most central passages because it's revolving around the resurrection, which we've already shown is extremely important. First Corinthians is also believed to be one of the earliest books written. In fact, a lot of scholars would say that it is the first book that's written in all of the New Testament. Most of the Gospels are actually written a little bit after a good chunk of Paul's epistles. So First Corinthians is definitely before all the Gospels. When we look at First Corinthians, First Corinthians is probably written even by, for some of the more liberal scholars, maybe 20 years after the events that it's writing about, 40, 60 AD. But when we look at 1 Corinthians 15, 
in this specific passage, we see that, again, this is one of those sections that the wording is very clearly Luke and his style, and then all of a sudden it changes. And it also becomes very rhythmic when you read it in the Greek. It's very clear that this is some sort of hymn. It's written in such a way that it's supposed to be easy for people to memorize it. So this is written before Luke is writing Acts. It's before Luke, or excuse me, it's before Paul is writing 1 Corinthians. He's writing something that's already been circulating before him. So some scholars, more, the more conservative scholars, will even say that this is maybe even months after the resurrection. And even the more liberal scholars will probably date it to be 10 years after the resurrection. And most of them would probably date it to five or maybe a couple of years after. It doesn't, when we're talking about getting close to the events, it doesn't get any better than that when we're looking at sources from that time period. A lot of the sources that we have, even of the Caesars of that time, are hundreds of years after. Yet we look at those and we say that's reliable. So we're going to say that's reliable and throw this out. We're not using a non-biased approach anymore. So what he says in this, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein ye stand. And this is where it starts. By which you are saved, if we keep the memory that I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. And this, sorry, this is where it starts. How That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again on a third day according to the scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, Peter, then the twelve. After that, he was seen of above 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto this present day, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen of James, then all of the apostles, and then he ends with saying, and last of all, to me. So he's confirming all of those people that we've talked about with our facts have seen it. 500 when we're talking about the early disciples. So you have 500, you have James, you have Paul, all confirmed in that. Early church sermons, when we look at Acts 1 through 5, we see Peter's sermon, we see Stephen's sermon. All of these sermons also seem to be sermons that are written down before Luke is writing it down because they're different in their wording. And these also are confirming these sort of things. <clears throat> um, Acts 10, you also see Peter um, explaining some of the gospel to Cornelius, a Roman man, and that also confirms a lot of these facts. Fact number three, Paul believed he saw Jesus. The evidence we have for that is Paul. We have Luke and Acts. And then we also have from, for his suffering, we have all of these evidences from Paul himself, from Luke writing in Acts, from the Clement of Rome, Polycarp, Tertullian, Dionysus of Corinth, and Origen. All of these guys confirming these facts. Then from the creeds and from Luke. And last of all, he was seen by me also as one born out of due time, for I am least of the apostles, that I am not to be called an apostle because I was persecuted, because I persecuted the church. So this is also confirming that, that fact that he was against the church to begin. 
Then in Acts, we see, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. So here is even where Jesus appears to him. So even those details. Clement of Rome talks about, and they suffered martyrdom on the pre- under the prefix. So those are our sources for that. For our, la- for our next fact, James believed he saw Jesus before he didn't believe. So when we look at um, some of the early Gospels, we see that he didn't believe, that he doubted. But when we look at Galatians, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. And it goes on to say how they agreed in this Gospel. Paul, when he con- converts, he goes to Jerusalem to make sure that what he's preaching is in agreement with what the rest of the apostles and the early disciples are preaching. And he says, they have nothing to add to me. So they had nothing more to say. They didn't say, hey, you know, you forgot this part, Paul. You need to include that. He included everything that they felt needed to be included. And then he said, they also implored me that I should take care of the poor, the thing that I was most eager to do. So they're all on the same page. For even his own brothers did not believe him. John 7, 5, that's where we see it in the gospel that James didn't believe before. And then after that, he was seen of James. Again, looking at 1 Corinthians 15. See how this important that passage ends up being. We keep going back to that. It's central. And of course, it should be. It's the earliest source we have of any of the gospel message. It precedes any of the New Testament. Yeah. That um, well, I mean, this one's there. You're saying like James the disciple? Yes. Yes, because they're both apostles, because they both see Christ afterwards. Um, I mean, that Galatians is specifically separating it because it says only James, the Lord's brother. So that's very clearly talking about his brother. And then John, we're seeing that it's talking about James because it's including saying his brothers didn't believe him, which is James, right? Uh, um, And we also see that James, throughout the New Testament, James the disciple, isn't really talked about much after the Gospels. So it's more reasonable to think that any passage talking about James throughout the New Testament is probably talking about Jesus' brother. Again, what do the skeptics say? I have no problem saying that the disciples had experiences of Jesus appearing to them as a fact of history. That's what Bart Ehrman says. Another skeptic, Larry Hurtado, says, teaching of resurrection messages dates to immediately after the cross. He's probably referencing 1 Corinthians 15 there. 
So I even took, and I wonder if um, he's done this with you, but the professor that Sean has right now for one of his classes, taking a class with him, and he would try to produce the idea that say that the idea that Jesus was viewed as God and rose from the dead was something that Paul came up with later and it wasn't believed by the early disciples. We don't really have good evidence to think that. The earliest sources that we have from scriptures, from Paul, from the Gospels, all be in very much agreement that Jesus was divine and he rose from the dead. On that note, it, like, I'll just use this precaution. Like, a lot of professors, just because they're accredited as a professor, does not mean they are necessarily teaching the subject well. Like, this teacher he's talking about went to seminary school, and I, multiple times in class, I've called him on like biblical fallacies, like him saying something that's in the Bible. And equally, I have had other professors who are of different faiths that are so well-acknowledged and so easy to talk to that they have better, those other professors of other faiths have better represented Christianity in the philosophical world than some of the Christian scholars that are at CSU. Right. So it's something for us to be careful about in this environment and realize that like, on this campus specifically, Christianity is actively Right. Um, so our last fact is the empty tomb. And again, this was one that scholars have the biggest disagreement on, about 75% of scholars that agree on this fact. But when we look at this, one of the things that we can see is, first of all, the Jerusalem factor. The tomb's empty is the argument, right? You're going to tell me that somehow all of Jerusalem didn't put it together, that the tomb still had the body in it? Somebody isn't going to be like, no, 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 like I know where Joseph's tomb is. And I went and looked, the body's still there. The entire city didn't put that together. Because if they did, no way Christianity would have taken off the way that it did. That would have squashed it right away. The other thing that you have is, again, looking at enemy attestation, we talk about looking at the scriptures, how they're told to lie about what happened to the body. They're not denying what happened. They're not denying that the tomb's empty, that is. Or, or there's other parts where we even talked about Josephus' quote of saying that he performed miracles. They're not denying that he performed miracles. Or even when... Uh, he performs miracles, and we look at the scriptures in themselves. The Pharisees don't say, well, you never did those things. They know, because this guy's been sitting crippled outside the temple for 40 years, and suddenly he's walking around. They know that he performed a miracle. The best they can do is say, you did it from the devil. That's the best thing they got. They're attesting that he did do miracles. And we're, we're seeing that there's a testing that the tomb is empty because they're trying to make up a story of why it's empty. 
disciples stole the body. If it's not empty, you don't make a lie to confirm that it's empty. Um, and then lastly, the testimony of the women. This goes back to the principle of embarrassment. Women's testimony in that day was meaningless. If I'm trying to prove that a tomb is empty, I'm not going to have a bunch of women as the testimony of that. In today's day and age, it'd probably be getting like a little five-year-old kid who's got a very active imagination <laughs> and putting him on the, on the witness stand to prove that something happened. A court's not going to look at that and be like, yeah, I totally believe that five-year-old. They're going to be like, no, that's not legit because that's not a reliable source. In that same way, in that day and age, for the disciples to write that the women discovered the tomb is empty, his reason to think, well, it probably was empty because if they're making up the story that it was empty, they're going to put somebody on the witness stand to lie that's got credibility with everybody else but they don't put somebody like that up there. So ultimately, now that we have all of these facts together, someone who's going to object to this has to give us an explanation of these facts. They either have to prove that these facts aren't true, or they have to give me some other explanation of those facts other than Jesus rising from the dead that better explains those facts. And what we find is each of these facts end up falling on their, each of these objections end up falling on their face when people start to throw them out there. So these are each of the theories that people throw out. And keeping in mind the different facts that we have, I'll try to write this kind of big, we can kind of look at each of these and figure out what things each of these prove. Oh, that's dead. Um, We'll just have to do it by our heads. Um, so the swoon theory. The swoon theory is the idea that Jesus didn't really die. He was up on the cross. He fainted. And then he was put in the tomb, and then he came out. So here's the problems with that. First of all, you're disagreeing with our number one fact that he did actually die. Everything that we see gives evidence that he did. So you have to explain that. Well, maybe the Roman guards just couldn't tell. They're Roman soldiers. They've seen death. They know death when they see it. And he was stabbed in the side, and blood and water came out, which we know medically now that's the separation of the blood from the water that happens when someone dies in that sort of way. So you have to explain that. And then let's say somehow, let's give you the benefit of the doubt. Let's say that he didn't die. He somehow survived a crucifixion, survived being stabbed, and the Roman soldiers didn't notice. Still have a guard outside the tomb. So you're expecting this guy who's barely alive, who fainted because he's dying, to come out of that tomb, somehow get past the guards, and then show up, and his disciples look at him and be like, whoa, you're in such great shape. You must have risen from the dead. No. They're not going to look at it like that. They're going to be like, holy cow, we made a mistake, and you weren't dead. Let's not tell anybody, because <laughs> they're going to kill you. 
But if they're looking at it and they're like, you rose from the dead, who freaking cares? Because they can't kill you anyways. Then they're going to go and start talking about it. They're not going to be convinced that he rose from the dead. They're not going to go around people telling people that he rose from the dead. That's not going to convince James, who didn't believe. It's not going to convince Paul, who's going around persecuting the church for years. The only thing that that accounts for is that the tomb's empty. That's the only thing that that really accounts for. The other thing is saying that the disciples stole the body. So now you're going to say that 12 fishermen took on the most powerful, well-trained military force guarding a tomb and got past them. Stole the body. I don't think that's going to fly. <clears throat> then you still, with that, what about Paul? How are you convincing Paul? Paul's persecuting the church for a while. Why is he joining the boat? Remember, what are the reasons that people decide that they're going to lie about something or commit a crime? Power, sex, or money. Paul's moving up in the ranks. He's doing quite well in the Jewish ranks, and he's moving up. He's a Levite. He's got all the credentials he needs to move up as high as he wants. Is he going to join this group that's being persecuted, that he's persecuting? It's not a good move. It's not doesn't doesn't make sense of that. It's not going to explain why James is going to be convinced either. James is going to be like, "You guys took the freaking body." I'm still not convinced. <laughs> um, the hallucination theory. They just imagined it. Well, what about the empty tomb now? Now you still have a body. Why don't you just parade that body through the streets? Hey, you guys are saying that he rose from the dead. Here's the body. He's dead. Plain as day. That would end it right then and there. They clearly didn't do that. How do you get Paul on board with that? It doesn't also fit with what we know of how hallucinations work. People generally, when they hallucinate, don't imagine the same thing. If all of us took LSD right now, we're all going to look at and see different things. We're not all going to imagine the same thing. And you could try to get all really confusing with this and say, well, let's combine a bunch of these theories. Let's look. And then last of all, the replacement theory. This is the Muslim perspective. It just appeared as though he died and actually somebody else was up on the cross. Kind of a magic trick. You really think that the disciples, Mary, Jesus' own mother, is going to be like, oh, yeah, that's him, and not notice, ah, I don't think that's our guy. Where's Jesus that whole time, if that's the case, too? And who's in on it? Somebody has to be in on it. Are the disciples in on it? If they're in on it, why are they willing to die for it afterwards? Oh, yeah. Uh, so you're going to kill me. Or I could admit that I was in on this thing where we crucified Judas instead of Jesus and then said Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, we made it up. We tricked you. They're going to confess. So none of those theories ends up really making sense of any of them. And then people try to do a little bit of like combining all of these different things. And in the, in the end, ultimately what ends up happening is you've just made such a complicated theory that it's still not any more reasonable. And I, honestly, 
when Gary Habermas goes around, Gary Habermas is again the guy who's researched this more than anyone, who's kind of come up with this whole minimal facts approach. When he goes around and he debates with some of these scholars, some of these skeptics about it, none of them are willing to even give him another theory because he know, they know he's just going to rip them apart. <laughs> so ultimately, these are the facts. And you have to give an explanation of these facts. And there's really, frankly, nothing else out there. So in the end, um, if you guys haven't seen it, oh, maybe it's not going to pull it up. Um, I'll have to pull it up another day. Um, if you guys have, have you guys seen Case for Christ? I'm not usually a fan of Christian movies. I'll tell you, usually I think, what? I read some of the stuff was Yeah. So usually I think Christian movies, the acting's bad, plots stink, um, and all sorts of things about them that just scripts are bad. This is one movie that I totally get behind. Um, so Case for Christ is a story about Lee Strobel. He's an investigative journalist, um, mostly of crimes in Chicago, writing for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife became a Christian. And he was super frustrated about it because they were atheists. And he was like, I'm going to go out. I'm going to investigate it. I'm going to show that this thing's bull. And I'm going to show my wife that she needs to come back to atheism. And he set out to investigate it. And lo and behold, he finds himself becoming a Christian. And he writes Case for Christ. And now he's written a number of other um, books arguing for Christianity. And so it's all about his journey. And it, there's a really cool scene in that where he's just kind of frustrated. He's realizing like the evidence is adding up against him. And it, his coworker comes in, and it's his coworker who is a Christian who really told him, hey, if you want to prove this whole Christianity thing bunk, look at the resurrection. Because the whole thing falls on that. If the crucifixion didn't happen, Christianity is false. And in this scene, he kind of comes in and he says, Put up or shut up. Write the article, prove it wrong, or admit that it's true. And I think ultimately when it comes to a lot of this, that's what we got to do with people. Show them the information. Show them the facts. I don't think there's a better argument for Christianity than this. And what sense, like how much sense does it make that it's around the most central issue to all of Christianity? Thanks again for listening in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please give it a like or a share so we can be sharing this with more people. We'll catch you again next week.